0: So again, I've always been obsessed with the idea of um, of optimization and where where can we optimize here in emerging markets to to solve a very big problem, right? And when you look at the um, at the African continent, it actually produces twice more food as it consumes. Yet there is hundreds of millions of people that suffers from malnutrition, right? So it's yeah. obviously not a scarcity problem. The food is there. It's a logistics problem.
1: That was the voice of Bilal al-Mugharbil, co-founder and CEO of Maxab, the B2B marketplace for retailers. I am your host, Ali Zweil, and this is the Startups Arabia podcast, where you learn about the Arab startups ecosystem from the best founders, investors, and operators in the region. Welcome to the Startups Arabia podcast. My guest today is Bilal al-Mugharbil. Bilal is the co-founder and CEO of Maxab. After he graduated from Virginia Tech, Bilal decided to join the family business and worked there for two years before joining the famous ride-hailing app Karim, the biggest exit in the Middle East so far. Despite his stellar career at Karim, he left the Middle East's first unicorn to build an app that would transform the Egyptian B2B grocery marketplace forever. In 2018, he teamed up with Mohammed bin Halim, his co-founder and the CEO of MaxApp, and formed the e-commerce marketplace MaxApp to connect informal food and grocery sellers with suppliers, and provide a wide range of services to underserved areas in Egypt and Morocco. I think I can safely say that Mexab is one of the most highly valued and fastest growing startups out of Egypt, and that makes for a very interesting conversation that I'm sure you'll all enjoy. Now, here's our interview. Welcome to the Startups Arabia podcast. My guest today is Bilal Mugharbil, the CEO and co-founder of Maxup, And it's a double pleasure for me to host Bilal today. Uh, on one hand, he was recommended to me by several founders that I deeply respect, so I'm very looking forward to this uh, interview. And on the second hand, I really love the mission of Maxup because of the fact that it, it kind of empowers the little guy. The, the, the small mom and pop shops, Uh, and uh, the retailers in uh, forgotten places all over Egypt, Morocco, and hopefully all over North Africa and the Arab world in the coming years. So that's another reason I'm very happy to be hosting Bilad today. Welcome, Bilad.
0: Thank you so much, Ali, and thank you for the great introduction. Happy to be with you tonight. Uh,
1: Great. So maybe we'll start at the very beginning. So if you tell me a little bit uh, in a few minutes like how you came to the world of startups uh, and, and, and to uh, found uh, Maxup.
0: Sure. Um, so basically I've always been uh, curious about uh, about building things and, and solving big problems. Um, and, and this idea has always been on my mind, regardless what the problem is, right? When um, I found my passion, when I saw that there's a massive opportunity that, um, that, uh, that can serve the underserved areas, and it has something to do with optimization and supply chains, right? Because that's uh, that's what I'm obsessed with, right? Uh, supply chains in general. Um, so the story happened when once I moved back to Egypt. I actually tried to do a startup back in the days um, to share uh, to share uh, videos online with a couple of my colleagues, um, uh, and then obviously this went uh, this went no um and then i went back to uh, to work with for the family business and during that time uh, i've actually uh, has been spending some time with some of my colleagues uh from from high school here in egypt uh, and by complete coincidence most of them work for supply chain companies or fmcds in general um, and i learned that there was a massive gap in in this part of the world in terms of how these fmcds reach uh, the small uh, mom and pop shops uh, in, in Egypt and other emerging markets and that's where uh, the idea of Maxab uh, actually uh, um, have been initiated, right? But at that point of time, I had no clue how to build or scale a tech business and I was very aware of it, right? Uh, and that's why I, I decided to join um, whom I thought at the time and uh, Alhamdulillah I actually was right about it uh, was doing something meaningful in the region that that was Karim at the time um so luckily i knocked on their door they gave me a job and and i spent a year and a half there learning how to scale a tech company in emerging markets um and then the rest is history
1: (laughs) so uh okay uh maybe you can tell me a bit more about that uh problem that you recognized in the supply chain because for very early on in my career i worked in fmcg and uh they were dependent in these in their smaller mom and pop shops uh, on distributors and it seemed to be like a, a pretty uh, standard stable relationship uh, between the distributors the retailers the moment pop shops that is and the fmcg and you know it's been going on for decades and, and probably still continuing until now so where did you see the opportunity i mean where did
0: you see the problem that that could make a difference here Sure. So when you look at that supply chain end-to-end, it's actually quite fragmented and multi-layered, right? So basically, when you look at the market in Egypt um, and other emerging markets like Morocco, Nigeria, Pakistan, most of these markets, um, the big guys, the the Kroger's and the Walmarts of our part of the world only represent 10% of the business, right? Uh, the other 90% um, of the groceries being sold happens at the small mom-and-pop shops, right? Uh, and then you, when you zoom in at Egypt, right? There are 400,000 grocery stores. The distributors and the big players in this market would usually cover um, the big, the, the the most active or the bigger uh, retailers, right? Those are 10% of the market. So, these are 40,000 out of the 400,000, right? This fragmentation will always mean a lot of value being lost in that supply chain. So, there's margins being lost. There is no visibility of data downstream as soon as the products leave the fmcg warehouse and moves downstream the visibility ends right so there is no pulse on the demand and what the consumers are doing right um, and the idea was to eliminate uh, all these layers and connect the fmcgs directly um to these mom and pop shops uh, but to do that we had to redesign the entire supply chain right um so you've worked in distribution and you know how the sales has been a push-driven supply chain, right? So these FMCGs will hire a distributor. They will then um, uh, bring trucks and salesmen. Uh, These guys will pack their vehicles with whatever they think they're going to send. They will pass by 20 retailers um, every day. They will only sell to to 10 of them. So 50% uh, uh, successful. Um, And they're only going to be selling one product, the product of that FMCG, right? And that makes the entire supply chain um, inefficient, um, and it's because it's 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 push driven. You don't actually capture the, the retailer behavior, right? And once you don't have that data point, you're not able to optimize on your supply chain. Uh, and that's why we had to redesign the entire supply chain from a push driven supply chain to a pull driven supply chain that is triggered by the retailer placing an order to what he actually needs, right? Uh, and that's how um, how we started. We designed this app. We gave these up uh, to uh, to the retailers, and then we started buying inventory and aggregating it in warehouses that is in close proximity um, to these retailers. Be- these retailers can then see uh, all the items that we have in stock, and we had a very strong emphasis in always being in stock because these retailers don't have access to much credit, uh, so they're not able uh, to stock aggressively, so they'd always want their supplier to be reliable. Right? So being reliable, mean, meaning always in stock and delivering on time every And we focused on these reliability uh, matrices quite well. Uh, and this is honestly what got us uh, so far. We're all, always consistently in stock or better, you're never 100% in stock. Um, and we've been consistently delivering on our um, our SLA, which is 24 hours. And we deliver uh, 97% of our orders within um, these 24 hours. That's wonderful. Um, yeah. One of the things I liked
1: about this approach, when I observed it, is that it's kind of everyone else was looking at this supply chain from the top down, so looking at the needs of the FMCGs and and you know the, the existing ecosystem, but you uh, delivered a, a solution that made perfect sense for the mom and pop shop, so the one who used to close their store so that they can go to the wholesaler and get some stuff, the one that had to have uh, you know many orders from different distributors to get the different products rather than getting just one package with everything uh, all at once so there there is this focus on this, the the end customer the uh, the retailer so was this like deliberate or did it this come out of solving the the gaps and and trying to optimize the supply chain or did you actually talk to a lot of these retailers and and see their
0: problems as well um look so basically when you're building any marketplace model uh, that connects buyers and sellers you have to actually figure out who do you want to bet on right and, and our bet was was quite clear. we wanted to bet uh, on the retailer right uh, the idea is that if the retailers really love you right if you they see the value you, you add you will have they will tell their retailer friends and then you you will your retailer base will grow significantly and then own these sellers would want to sell on your platform, right? Um, So we focused on understanding what are the retailers need um, and serve them and be relentless about the way we do it. Extremely focused about serving these guys. Uh, And again, it was a bet on the small uh, small mom and pop shops that has been historically uh, underserved uh, specifically in the areas we operate in. And we exclusively operate in what we call underserved areas, right? these are not the nice push neighborhoods of egypt uh, these are actually uh, semi-well covered by the by uh, by the other players uh, in the market uh, and then focus on the ones that has historically been suffering from the lack of of reliability um um uh, in this market.
1: yeah that's uh that's really cool but when you first started to validate the idea um uh, I think I read somewhere that you didn't do that with with an app. I mean, you 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 took a warehouse some somewhere and you started working. How how did you go about validating the idea? Can can you tell us more about that?
0: Yeah. So basically, our our uh, our thesis and our philosophy in building products in in emerging markets is very different than in the Western part of the world, right? Because uh, the challenges we say we face are very different, and the um, Uh, The ecosystem here is is quite different, right? So the unfortunate reality of our part of the world is that it's cheaper to try try offline, right? Uh, So we actually, yes, we did actually have a small warehouse. It was literally 400 square meters. A couple of vehicles uh, where me and my colleagues would go out and try and sell uh, uh, using a cash van model that we actually are planning to kill right? In the market, right? But we, you actually need to know what's wrong about this model to be able to offer a better solution, right? And nobody knew us at the time. So nobody, again, think 2018, there was no such idea as B2B e-commerce. Everybody thought we're crazy because we're going to give a retailer in these kinds of neighborhoods an app and think that these guys will actually use it, right? So they ha- we have to start building trust, right? So they, we had to come, show up, Every single day with the inventory that they that they buy and say here it is right uh, and during this period we've been started to, to collect data right collect uh, creating profiles in our backend for the for those retailers and then we went to phase two where we created a call center that will do outbound calls and receive inbound calls um, from these retailers and during that period of time we've been uh, we started to actually develop our. Uh, our our uh, retailer-facing app. Uh, by, and by that point, we had enough data how these guys see their products, what's important to them, right? What do we need, really need to show? Um, and so on and so forth. So when we showed up and started giving them the app, they had already developed some sort of a relationship with us, and we had already uh, built our operational supply chain, which actually is a way more sophisticated technology to build than your retailer-facing app specifically in emerging markets with emerging markets challenges in the supply chain infrastructure that we uh, operate to, uh, in and um, the reliability uh, issues of various parties that we need to actually consider uh, and actually be able to predict demand so we're able to stock better and all these things. Uh, these were very unique challenges that we were focused on um, at the beginning, um, and that's how we, we we actually started. Now, the idea of moving people to the app Um, was actually quite challenging, right? Because we were using our boots on the ground, our field force to actually onboard the retailers on an app, which was something that has not been done uh, ever in the region before, right? The the usual salesman has always been used to selling a product, right? While we were selling a service, right? We're selling our application. Go on the application and you'll find all the products you want and we will actually show up uh, within 24 hours. Now, as people started trying the service and we actually showed up, right, uh, it felt like a magical experience for these guys, right? Um, And that's what kept them coming back, um, and that's when we started um, scaling quite significantly. Right, and
1: and how long between, like, beginning to test the idea until you had that app in people's hands?
0: I I think we launched the app uh, anywhere between uh, four to five months from selling our first product. Well, so, I mean, you, it was still quite quick. I guess you you
1: started by getting your operational system set up, uh, some relationships with suppliers, and then you went to the market, and then you built the app, right? And you started selling the app,
0: so to speak. Exactly, I, exactly. I, I mean, yeah, so four months uh, looks quick now that we are close to a 5 years old company, but felt like ages uh, when we very first started, right? Yep, yep
1: so uh i mean it's really cool how how quickly things have moved isn't it uh, over the the last five years but but maybe i'll start from something very basic i mean how did you come up with a name for mexup i think you started with another name a uh, little birdie told me it was Murid or something like that but Mexab is such a cool name it's so on target uh and just for non-arabic speakers it means profit so i mean something very relevant to small theater. How did you come up with
0: that name? We've actually changed name like uh, a couple of times before landing uh, on Maxep, uh, and 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 we wanted a name that fits both in Arabic and in English. Uh, so again, we thought, what's the most important thing in the life of the retailer? right? And it's making money, right? That's uh, they're trying to feed their families, uh, and hence uh, we came up with uh, uh, with Maxep in Arabic, uh, and then what exactly do we do? We maximize value by connecting point A to point B directly, and that's like max AB, right? Um, uh, and hence, we found a name that actually fits both the Arabic and the English version, um, and it made sense both ways, uh, and it stuck. and uh, And that was the the name we landed on after a couple of tries.
1: uh spot on. Congratulations! Uh, so, okay, let's let's dive a little into the business model uh or let's dive a lot into the business model so if you can tell me more about kind of how mixup makes money today do you guys buy inventory based on your demand expectations uh and put it in in the warehouses and then uh, set it to the retailers and, and make up uh, money from
0: the margins there or is there another model that you're making money Sure. Um, so we actually have now several, our, our business have, uh, have evolved, uh, but when it comes to FMCG specifically, uh, it's a complete retail model or an in-stock model as we call it, whereas yes, as you mentioned, we do buy the inventory and then we would mark it up according to market prices um, and sell it to the retailers, right? Um, this is how Maxup started, right? And again, we were f- very focused on understanding what the retailer needs uh, and, and from that understanding, um, we came up with um, our fintech solution, right? Um, so any supply chain consists of inventory moving down the chain and cash moving the other side of the chain, right? Uh, and then very early on, we realized that you will never sell 100% uh, of the inventory for any single retailer, right? Not a single business would buy all their goods from one uh, supplier. But one supplier can actually pass all their payments. And hence, we launched Maksab uh, Madfuaid, um, which is our, um, uh, our fintech solution. Um, and the idea is to offer um, uh, all types of payments uh, solutions uh, and quasi-banking solutions to these retailers, right? So we started by a bill aggregation business uh, so that retailers can start moving money into our, um, our wallet um, and doing bill aggregation and increasing their, um, uh, their profits by selling airtime and other utility uh, bill payments uh, to the retailers. And then we started offering credit on top of this data uh, and coupling it with the e- e- e-commerce data that we have. Um, and then we launched what we call business payments as well, which we give the retailer the ability um, to buy inventory from us and now we're onboarding other suppliers as well um, using uh, the money he has in the in the Maxabo, right? Um, so so that's the other uh, business that uh, we're extremely focused on now is 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 offering all the financial services that a retailer would need to grow their business.
1: That's uh, extremely cool. Um, so, I mean, how much? I guess the revenue is still
0: mostly from the commerce part, and the fintech is still starting to grow, right? Um. So actually, the the, the fintech has uh, has grown quite substantially, and out of the seventy thousand merchants that we have active. Uh, here in Egypt, um, um, we we actually have have been able to onboard more than twenty thousand of them onto our fintech business as well. Um, so it's it's roughly wow. uh, uh, more than one third of our our retailer base, and they're doing a similar volume uh, in e commerce and fintech. Um, and we actually are projecting that that this part of the business will be substantially um, uh, bigger in size over the next couple of years.
1: Incredible. Um... So uh, I would guess that it's very dependent on the other side in terms of data that, that feeds the algorithm. So you can, for example, uh, 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 like underwrite the loans, for example, that you give to the, to the people or decide how much credit to give someone or uh, how much the time they have to pay back and things like that. Uh, so, so there's kind of, there are two wings on one plane, so to speak.
0: Sure, yeah. So, basically, when you're when you when you're trying to build uh, credit scoring algorithms, the more data you have, the merited uh, on these retailers, right? So, now we don't only know the inventory they're buying from us, but we also have uh, a quite good pulse on on what traffic do they get and what kind of customers do they get as well. Uh, and all of this feeds into the models that I'm not going to say are, are, are fully uh, up and running. They're still uh, been built and getting better um, and better um, as we scale and, and as we collect. Uh, more data um, uh, from these retailers. Uh, But yes, as you mentioned, again, the more the meritor, the more data we have uh, on these retailers, the more we understand how they function and how they operate, what kind of customers walk into their store, uh, so that we can also tailor our products even better to them.
1: Okay. And going back to the original business, um, it's a pretty low margin, like, per product, Uh, you don't usually, I mean, there's not a big margin there. So I'm assuming that since it's low margin, that it's very important to do a lot of inventory turns during the year to really make to maximize uh, profit. And there's a lot. So what do you do to maximize inventory turns and to make sure that you're turning over uh, your products as quickly as possible?
0: Sure. So basically, um, again, the the magic always lies in the data, right? So basically, because we have accumulated so much data, and again. We understand every single morning, we know how many people have opened the app. And we have historical data of conversions of every kind of product, right, Uh, on the app. And then we use this data to build what we call the just-in-case inventory model. We operate with a very limited inventory on hand. You cannot work with a just-in-time model in emerging markets. It's just very theoretical. On-ground is unapplicable. And we don't have to stock 30 days or more. Uh, like a normal offline wholesale, right? So we actually operate with only 10 days on average of inventory on hand because we have um, this data. Uh, now you leverage this data as well to build a, a personalized pricing engine and a personalized promotion engine. So we've built these two items, these two models as well, to be able to push um, and adapt for every region. So our business is what we call hyperlocal, right? So our um, the guy that buys from us would buy from... Other wholesalers is in his neighborhoods. Nobody have yet to reach the scale and the coverage we have um, in this market. But we have to adapt to the compet- competition in these markets, right? Which are usually small offline um, wholesalers um, uh, in these uh, in these areas where everybody sells with his own price. So a single unified price does not work, right? Um, and that's what's unique about the B two B e commerce uh, business. Um, that is not very applicable uh, for the b2c um e-commerce business as an example right um and as you mentioned yes it's it's a business of low margin so scale is extremely important and operational efficiency is of utmost importance, right uh so that's why we also f- focus on uh, all the operational technology like route optimization and dispatching picking and sorting uh, optimization inside our warehouses as well and then we also start adding value added services such as the credit, such as um, data analytics that we um, sell to our uh, our suppliers, our FMCGs to be able uh, for them to take better decisions. So we give them stuff like market share data, uh, price elasticity, and how much uh, a one pound increase uh, in their pack of whatever good they sell uh, on their demand. Uh, we do uh, new product launches. So if they want to try a new product in the market, uh, we're very quick to put that uh, on the shelf and give them uh, retailers' feedback, which are things that have never been applicable before. Um, and by stacking all these on top of each other, we're able to build uh, potentially a high-margin business, not a low-margin business.
1: Right. And, and that's key, isn't it? Because, I mean, somebody, some people argue you know, you're just an automated distribution business, but it's really much more than that. There's so much more value that you can br- take out of the value chain uh, by doing all these things, and uh, I know you're always investing in cutting edge things, like you did with uh, recently with uh, AWS and and working on improving the demand uh, prediction uh, algorithms and things mm-hmm. like that. But at the same time, there are a lot of like existing uh, people you are disintermediating in the wholesaler who have strong relations with FFCGs. Uh, FMCGs as well uh, need to see the benefit from, you know, taking risks with a new kind of partner uh, that will take more of the margin in the value chain, et cetera. So what's your pitch to FMCGs?
0: Um, look, so basically, again, if if you look at this supply chain that is extremely fragmented, the average case of whatever product that you can think of will on average exchange hands four to five times before it reaches the retailer, right? So this is moving downstream and sideways. so a wholesaler would usually buy from another wholesaler and then that would move to a smaller wholesaler and the retailer. So it moves downstream and side and sideways as well, right? So if you can only picture that there is a two to three percent margin that is actually being lost in every one of those transactions, there's a big margin to be captured over time where you can pass some of these savings to the retailers and some of these savings to the FMCTs as well. So we are creating um, an environment where pretty much everybody wins. Uh, there's, the, look, when, but whenever there is a, a disrupting uh, play in the market, there is always uh, uh, going to be people that are not that very happy with, with the business, but that that's the virtue of life, right? And in a market that is $300 billion in our part of the world, in the Middle East, uh, there is, I don't believe that there's only going to be a a winner. It's not a winner takes all market, right? Uh, So there's always going to be room uh, for incumbent players. And we also have, we foresee that some of these players will change the way they do business, right? So they will start offering different unique propositions to the FMCGs um, uh, so that they create room um, uh, for a a, a disruptive player uh, to actually improve the efficiency of that market overall
1: yeah um, disruption is always good for a market uh, ultimately. Um, so um, something that's very interesting here is the data you're collecting. It's so it's like a treasure trove of data about uh, trends and demand and and you know that is even though, your your inventory is just in case, but but the data is very much just in time and and really uh, timely. Uh, so this could potentially be a huge source of revenue as well. I think. Or how do you think about this issue?
0: Uh, of course, I mean it's it's not an issue; it's a blessing in disguise, right? So basically, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, And and the data itself um, is is not as valuable if you don't know how to do with it, right? And that actually takes time, right? Um, so be. And pretty much what we've seen here in the region and what I've observed um, around us is that it's very hard to actually capture quality data in the market, right? Uh, So you have to make sure that your data is as clean as it gets so that you are actually capturing the real behavior of the retailers, right? Uh, Stuff like how do you eliminate duplicate accounts, right? Uh, How do you make sure um, uh, that you're actually capturing all the needed data during the retailer's journey from the point he move, he opens the app till he checks out and even after he checks out, what does he do, right? And then how do you tabulate properly all this in the database and then how do you extract value out of it, right? Um, and as I mentioned, we, we do have analytics uh, products that we sell uh, to a vast range of FMCGs actually. And um, again, the, it, these this data we used internally to optimize our supply chain and then we realized that there is external value that can be captured from such data and we started engaging uh, with a lot of our uh, partners uh, in the FMCG industry and, and actually provide them um, with uh, a data that is, uh, as you mentioned, super real-time that did not exist in the market before where they can adjust their decision-making specifically in turbulent times like we see the world in today.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So, speaking of turbulent times, I mean the past five years must have been like uh, being in the middle of a hurricane for you. Uh, things moving so quickly. You know, I saw like when you raised the seed round in 2019, you were 270 employees. By the time you were raising the the Series A, you were 1,600 employees. I have no idea how many employees you have now. Uh, you know, you uh, have the core business. There's also the fintech business. There's the private labels. We didn't speak about that, but uh, you seem to be starting uh, private labels as well. So, I mean, and the data now you're thinking about how to use it, all these different things happening at the same time, you know, typical blitzkating kind of situation in a company that's less than five years old, or maybe five years old, how do you prioritize all the different things, you know, the mix up needs to do? How do you work through your strategy?
0: Um, yes, so there's definitely have a lot that have happened, and 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 again, what got us uh, from A uh, to point B will never get us from point B to point C, right? So we're a very different company in every stage, from pre-seed to seed, from seed to A, from A to B. Uh, the challenges have changed, um, uh, but uh, but I believe we've been uh, quite agile in adapting uh, to how do we need to look like, and we've complete we've always completely redesigned the way we do business. Now, what got us here is definitely. Uh, the colleagues we have at the organization. So at the end of the day, I'm I'm just the face that represents um, a lot of people that are doing a much better job than I am uh, in making sure um, that Microsoft makes it right. And and what got us where we at now uh, is uh, the quality of 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 the people we have on board, uh, and that we are very blessed and lucky um, to have these uh, people on board that are able. To actually adapt from every stage uh, to uh, to the other, right? And and this is actually quite difficult to find, right? Um, that to that the the same people or the vast majority of them are able to be hustlers on ground when needed, and then sit in, fr- in front of a computer and then analyze data and then build structures and operations. We're now three thousand five hundred people in the organization, so I we we can. There's no way you run this business like when it was 200 people or when you were only six, seven people in the office, right? So th- there's a lot that needs to change how we do decisions, how do you build checks and balances uh, that make sure that you're building for the upcoming stage, right? And you always have to not lose yourself in dreams and hopes uh, of the future or and not to be um, too distracted by the day-to-day and find that balance um, that will always make sure you're doing and getting the targets that you've set for yourself on the short term without deviating from the path that you set for the company to the future.
1: Yeah. And I guess the role of the, the CEO changes as well dramatically from, you know, each stage to the next. And maybe at this stage, it's more about your, your role is more about resource allocation, deciding, you know, where to put the resources of the, of the company and delegating, you know, the actual execution to, to others and, and following up on that, I guess, more so than it was where you were probably, your hand was in every single decision in the first year or two.
0: So, basically, I believe a CEO's role is, is actually it's actually quite simple. It's You have to do two things and you have to do them very right. You have to be able uh, to hire the best people uh, and bring them on board. Uh, and they have to be very bought into the mission and what we're trying to accomplish. And the second one is fundraising to fuel uh, actually uh, the the experiments and the trials of these uh, bright minds that you bring on board, right? So basically, uh, if you do these two things right, if you have the right people and the right quality of investors on board, you're able to always deliver things that has never been thought are actually achievable, specifically in emerging markets, right? Um, and again, the, the, the hard thing is that it's actually quite difficult to build uh, a technology business in uh, in, in the North African region to be precise, um, where there's not that many companies that have reached uh, that scale. So the hard part is that there is no reference, right? Uh, and once you don't have a very clear reference, you have to actually make sure that you have the people on board that will figure this out, right? There's nobody to learn from. They have, we all are learning on the job and we all are wearing a way bigger shoes than our size and we're trying to go as grow as people to actually fill these shoes yeah that's so true and and this is actually a question that was uh
1: there were a few people who submitted questions when they found out that you're uh that i'm interviewing you one of them is uh, a listener called uh, darwish and he was talking about he wanted to ask you you know as early teams uh who built the company as you said who had such a role some of them would be able to adapt to the growth. And some people would be more the type of people who were good in the early stage and not as good uh, maybe uh, for the next stage, at least in leadership roles. So how do you balance the, the the idea of loyalty versus, you know, loyalty to the people who built the company versus effectiveness and being, you know, and, and taking the company where it needs to go in the future? Because as you mentioned, you know, what, what brought you here won't get you there, so to speak.
0: Sure so basically I think we've been quite transparent with uh, with all our colleagues that we bring on board right so and and this transparency ma- makes this uh, these decisions quite easy uh, and quite straightforward right so basically again as I mentioned we all know that we're wearing a way bigger shoes than our size at least most of us right we definitely have a lot of of senior people that came from very uh, very strong backgrounds uh, but as an average rule, as as you build a startup, you always start with a, a group of people that are hustling uh, um, their way in uh, uh, rather than a lot of uh, of people that come from te- 20, 30 years of experience, right? Uh, and you always make it clear what we appreciate and how do we foresee this journey. And as what I mentioned to you, I've always mentioned inside the company as well, that what got us to point e, A won't get us to point B, and what got us to point B e, won't get us Forward and you all need to adapt, right? And it's very easy for people once this is very clear um, to them to actually know what's known from them in this upcoming period, right? Uh, and they either uh, get there or we have to part ways. That there's no shame about it, right? And actually, some people actually just don't like the other job. It's not that they're not incapable. A lot we've seen a lot of capable people. And by the way, I was one of those guys, right? And then I had to change, right? Uh, I like to do things myself, specifically when. They have to do with uh, either optimization or supply chain, but I have to be a different person every every year or actually every nine months, right? Uh, and I understand quite well for me to go to the next phase, I have to be a new person, right? Uh, and this cascades down the organization.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I heard you in a video saying, you know, that the most two important things are execution and people. Uh, uh, and um, so... Maybe I'll, I'll ask you. You know, how do you build an environment where people can execute effectively? What what needs to to be done to do that? Because it's not just about hiring, right? It's about also creating the environment for the hires to, to yeah. deve- to execute.
0: So yes, so definitely, like two things. We we actually um, we actually decentralize decision making to the best of our ability, uh, and then we make it very clear what do we appreciate. Right? You need to be failing, failing quickly, quickly learning from your mistakes and and moving on, right? If you don't fail enough, then you're not trying enough bold things, right? And and then we make it very clear what do we appreciate. And once it's very clear what you appreciate, which as you mentioned, yes, we are big believers. Execution is the only thing that matters. I can speak strategy uh, for hours and years, right? But if I'm not able to execute on these strategies, they mean nothing, right? Uh, And we make this very clear. Um, uh, to our colleagues uh, in the organization, and that that's the thing that we appreciate. And if we execute well, we will go to the next phase, right? And by seeing the results of this strategy work, people starting believing in this, right? And again, you show and you appreciate, and you show what you appreciate as an organization and build that culture of getting uh, things done uh, is the most appreciated things, and and you embrace it yourself. Uh, it definitely also um, uh, cascades down uh, in the organization. Yeah. So uh,
1: going to another thing, I mean, uh, these are very tough economic times. Um, a lot of startups are doing layoffs, etc. cetera. Uh, at the same time, mashallah, uh, I was uh, like on LinkedIn, uh, it says that your headcount has grown 10%. I, I expect it's probably more uh, in the last year despite all this and I see you have a lot of job openings. so um, is that
0: isn't that risky that you're growing so fast in in these types of times? Look, so at the end of, at the end of the day you, you have to actually take bets, right This is as tricky as this time is. Uh, we believe that there's so ma- so many opportunities that arises uh, from this uh, madness that's happening all around us. Uh, and we actually wanna capture these opportunities. Like what, what other people see as a challenge, we see as an opportunity. Uh, and we've also honestly been blessed uh, with a business model that we're building that is actually does well in, in in tough times, right? So the thing that people don't stop doing is they, they don't stop paying for stuff. Hence the FinTech payments, it's still uh, growing quite fast and they still buy food, right? The average Egyptian spends 40% of every uh, pound he makes on groceries. Right, uh, so we've we've seen these trends of people trading down from high um, uh, expensive items to lower items, from big pack sizes to small back pack sizes, and we've been able um, to adapt quite quickly um, to this as well. Uh, and that's what have actually made us able to actually capture um, uh, growth uh, in this uh, tough environment. And uh, as you mentioned, um, we're we're quite an efficient. Uh, go-to-market strategy, right? So we are actually extremely cost-efficient in a lot of cases uh, for a lot of FMCGs to actually give us more inventory to move, not less, uh, because we are efficient uh, uh, in how we uh, put the products on the shelves of these retailers. Wonderful. So, Bilal, um,
1: you have so many things pulling you in so many different directions, you know, uh, operations stuff, uh, hiring, as you mentioned... Uh, uh new initiatives, uh, probably investor relationships, board meetings, etc. How
0: do you organize your
1: time? Uh what's a typical work week look like?
0: Um well I'm I'm quite a messy person that you would not find half my meetings uh, yeah. in in my calendar and I manage by observation so I'll be walking like a crazy madman around the office trying to see what everybody's doing. Uh, but again, that was uh, an earlier phase, and I'm trying to change and becoming a more organized person to be able to cater um, uh, for for these changes. Uh, and again, as you operate, we operate today in 24 uh, or 25 cities today in, in two markets and uh, launching the third market um, quite soon as well. Uh, so I cannot, I, I don't see everybody, right? So I have to actually start putting... Uh, these things together, and again, I depend a lot on uh, on my colleagues uh, in both the um, uh, the management team uh, and and the rest of of our colleagues to actually empower them to take these decisions. And and my job now is pretty much to bulldoze their way, right? And that's what I always tell them: like, How do I pave the way for you to what you need and um, to deliver? Um, and by the virtue of my job now, I actually have to spend at least. 50 to 70% of my time externally, managing external stakeholders. And as you mentioned, fundraising um, uh, I- I investors and uh, and partners uh, in the ecosystem uh, to be able again uh, to capture these uh, growth opportunities, right? You need things that would make you grow by leaps and bounces and, and, and at a specific scale, these opportunities have to be quite big to actually move the needle. Uh, and that's what I'm uh, I'm I'm personally focused on. Uh, plus, uh, plus fundraising.
1: Cool. So, uh, you, going on another attack, uh, you're currently hiring a head of manufacturing for your private label products. I saw that in the job openings. And done you be... very well. Huh? You've done your homework very well, Ali. <laughs> well, I I try <laughs> just to. So uh, you know. It seems you're making a big investment in the private labels uh, area. Can you, can you tell me more about, so it's a lot of vertical integration that you're thinking about these days. Can you tell me more about what drove you in this direction?
0: Sure. So basically, again, it was driven by mainly our insights from our data telling us that there are specific gaps in the market that nobody is filling, right? Either a specific right. product that goes out of stock uh, quite a lot from the suppliers for one reason or the other, Um, Or either there is a a new product or a product that the uh, consumers don't care too much about what brand it is. They'd rather care about a high quality alternative at a cheaper price. Um, And then we leverage again all this data to actually manufacture them with other manufacturers that have underutilized uh, manufacturing capabilities, right? Um, So we also working with our suppliers. We figured out that there is so much unutilized capacity in manufacturing here in Egypt um, for one reason or the other. Like the um, the supplier planned for something that never happened uh, or the supplier actually wants to deliver a cheaper alternative that, but he doesn't want it to actually harm his brand if he's a tier one brand. And then we work with them in utilizing um, these uh, these production uh, plans so that they can actually save money overall or make more money and also the, the retailer makes some money and the consumer buys an alternative at a cheaper price, right? Um, and it's a very, very, very hectic job to to manage uh, uh, honestly manufacturing uh, capabilities that are not fully uh, under your control and making sure um, at the end of the day this is people's food, so quality control. Uh, there's no room for mistakes like not showing up on time. This can be tolerated, but again when it comes to people's food, we actually are um and quite focused on this so uh for whoever is applying for this role it's going to be a very hard role and (laughs) and uh, hopefully we're able to build that position soon yeah so uh,
1: i uh, well good luck to them but uh but (laughs) you have uh, i mean so i guess the way you're balancing you're actually helping your suppliers so that's why you're not worried about this spoiling the relationship with the suppliers because you're actually giving them the the use better use of their existing capacity and I second what you said because about the brands and they're worrying about brand uh, dilution. Because I, I know one big FMCG who had they had two brands uh, and uh, they had exactly the same product inside the package, but just totally different names and positioning, uh, because they don't want to dilute the main brand and say you know they're selling the brand cheaper and they want to uh, you know increase uh, their market. But aren't you going back I mean aren't you worried about focus like that, that this is a very different type of business with very different success criteria and yes you have the data to say that these private labels are needed but but the actual operations part can be uh, how can I put it like dilutive of your focus and your bandwidth?
0: Yeah, so that the way we do these these kinds of initiatives that we actually create a company within the company, uh, where the head of that vertical is completely empowered to take a lot of decisions and building his own operations so that they can run as quickly as they care, right? Um, and again, so we try to balance between the best of both worlds. Use the data that Maxab have and then run uh, a, a very different operation. So it comes from the realization first, right? So what you see uh, companies do mistakes with where they think it's gonna be the same business, right? And then they start treating it as an extension to their business, right? It's an extension to their value, but it's a whole different business, right? So you have to treat it like one, uh, and then you empower that team to take decisions, and then nobody else is affected within the normal organization, right? Um, they treat them like another supplier that's trying to sell uh, on our platform, right? Uh, and then you actually right. create um, some sort of a healthy internal um, competition of people, uh, different teams trying to give uh, the retailer's best quality uh, goods at the most affordable price. Yeah, so it's so it's kind of like the data layer is
1: like the base for everything in the company, and then you have different things built on it,
0: from commerce
1: to private labels to fintech, etc. Exactly, and we
0: different, yeah, right, yeah. So we're actually very big fans of folks. Like, and when everybody was expanding, we were actually very zoned in in just doing not even Egypt. We're only doing greater Cairo, and we're only doing one supply chain, which was the dry supply chain. Once we get got that right, we started to replicate that supply chain into other cities and then eventually other markets, and then we started launching other supply chains. And then once we perfected that, we, we started going one step backwards in the supply chain and launching our own private label, and one step forward with the uh, uh, with the retailer and offering them um, uh, other value-added services uh, such as the, the FinTech solution.
1: Right. Okay, so going to a different area, in in 2021, you decided to acquire Ways2Cap to to enter the Moroccan um, market. Um, Can you tell me what drove this decision to acquire rather than to build? So, I mean, you could have tried to build a subsidiary, for example, uh, and use the knowledge you have in Egypt and Morocco, but you decided to first acquire and then build up from there. Did you make this uh, analysis at the time or how did you make this decision?
0: Sure. So basically, as you mentioned, you don't want to dilute the team's focus and you have to acknowledge that there's always um, smart people building similar businesses elsewhere. And I'd always rather partner than compete uh, with um, uh, wherever whenever it makes sense. Right. Um, So this was the decision. Now, the decision to do Morocco was actually because it was the closest you can get to Egypt when it comes to market dynamics. Um, and hence we went uh, we went through that path, and we were not very aware uh, of the market, to be honest, right? So we had to figure out to pa- how to partner um, with people uh, that we can uh, leverage the knowledge we have collected accom- uh, um, over the years, and then uh, let them do uh, their thing when it comes to localizing our offering uh, in the market, and then uh, you can eventually build um, a-, a quite strong platform that can distribute to FMCDs, not only in, in one market, but actually multiple markets. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Uh, so, you basically use your... It's like uh, making even stronger. So, instead of just using your know-how, you have the local, and you add to it your know-how, and that's even, uh, you know, one plus one equals three, so to speak. Uh, so, I mean... Uh, uh, yeah, and and you, you raised also in 2021 20, 40 million dollars and then followed by the 15 million when you were acquiring ways to gap so I mean that's a lot of money and it probably comes with a lot of milestones and expectations uh, that you need to uh, build towards so how do you uh what are these expectations and and how do you plan for the upcoming fundraise so to speak what what needs to be done to to take it to the next level
0: um, so basically, again, I think uh, what we're trying to get to now is um, is we're no longer, and again, an, an e-commerce uh, play, right? We're building um, um, a super app for the retailer, right? And we're trying to serve him in so many multiple ways. And then we're trying to build a platform that would serve an entire region, uh, both uh, moving goods and money in uh, in these regions. So that's what what where we aspire aspire to go right? So again, started by e-commerce, launched the fintech business. We've also launched a very um, successful business, which we call Logistics as a Service, where we empower the retailers to deliver e-commerce packages to the consumer. Uh, And we've partnered with Amazon Jumia and other um, uh, e-commerce provider here in the local market. Um, And the idea was quite simple. How can we do this cheaper while we make, create a new revenue stream to the retailer um, that hasn't been uh, there before? And that picked up uh, way better than we actually expected, and we have hundreds of of retailers that are actually using um, uh, these service and again uh, working with uh, the biggest name in this industry and and giving them a, a re- reliable uh, service when it comes to serving these neighborhoods that have actually been also very difficult uh, to live to deliver uh, e-commerce packages to. Right. Um, so I believe the investors that always come look for again that multiplier effect that leap uh, and bounce after uh, they have invested in the company and they always see they need to see how this business is going to grow to the point where it's going to return three to five times their money right Uh, and they have to have that conviction And, and that conviction comes from two things historical execution and the TAM and the total addressable market that you are trying to actually go after and having a track record that you've been able um, to do that,
1: yeah, yeah, that's perfectly put. So,
0: I mean, when going to the
1: like the the executive aspect of things, uh, when did you start having external board members at Maxa, uh, and 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 what makes for a great board?
0: Um, so, look, boards are usually quite tricky, right? Um, just by the virtue um, of of the job itself, right? So, these are a group of people. Uh, that usually uh, don't eat except uh, once a quarter uh, to look over numbers in a company where they have they there is they're not they're not involved in the day to day right um, so understanding that dynamic is key uh, to be able to get the best out of the board um, uh, and give them a full picture of the transparency of what's actually happening on ground right and and trust is key um, when it comes um to these boards i think we started so the first round we had was as all startups are on a convertible note basis so obviously did not have a board at that time and then uh, once we raised our series a we started to have um, um um a board and then the board grew um and i think again uh, we're also blessed to have a quite diversified um um uh, board that um that actually serves as a good check and balance to everything we do um, and help um, bring a lot of that external knowledge uh, to our organization and then we couple it up with actually what's happening on ground and then collectively come with an adjusted way forward because that way forward always adjusts, right? The mission is the same, the vision is the same. But how are you gonna get there actually? Um, always have to be uh, reiterated as as the market dynamics change.
1: Yeah. and. Just on the same thing, but a, a little different. What are the characteristics? And this is a question from uh, another podcast listener called Mark. So, what are the characteristics of the best investors and and the worst, if you if you can say?
0: Um, look, so basically, I think the best in, in, in investors are are usually ones um, that uh, that listens, right? Uh, and actually have uh, uh, something useful to say, right? Uh, most of the time, right? So basically, specifically in the Middle East, and I'm not talking about MagSav uh, uh, to be specific, but we've seen a lot of uh, boards go wrong, right? And, uh, and this is very, very, very unfortunate. Now, the entire ecosystem is it's in infancy, right? Like most of the funds are, are quite early. Most of us um, as founders are also quite young and early to this to this scene. So we're all learning right here in the Middle East, how, how to actually do that uh, and manage that specifically uh, when tech is quite new, right? Because how you built a tech company is also very different uh, than how you build a traditional business and building a tech company in emerging markets in Egypt mainly um, and Morocco, like these kinds of, um, of North African markets, also very different than how you built a tech company uh, uh, in Europe or, uh, or the U.S., right? Uh, so I think everybody is is kind of learning and and it is yet to be seen how is a perfect board for such a company um uh, evolves but what I can tell you is again we're we're all learning due, uh during this process we're all, all going to do uh, our fair um, share of mistakes as as board members or as um uh, as management teams uh till we figure out how do we get there but I think um the the best again are are ones that listens and know when to actually tell you uh, something insightful and when do they get away from your way so that you can do their things and that's have been our experience with the best board members they they, they really know when to uh, actually uh, intervene and when when do we actually uh, get out of your way right and uh, there's no there's there's, n- there's nothing nothing wrong about it right um and i believe it's it's uh, some of the best board members that i have seen uh, are the best at doing these two things
1: yeah that's um, a very good uh, answer and a very diplomatic one i must say and uh um, yeah. it, it kind of uh, come brings me to another question by by mark which is about listening actually uh, of course listening is also very important for the leaders uh, of our organization for you how have you worked on this thing and and you know being a better listener uh, and a better arbitrator so to speak inside the company
0: sure so the tricky thing about Maxab or any supply chain business is that there's so many different minds in place right by by virtue of it a supply chain so you have uh, the commercial aspect is very different than the operational aspect very different than the financial aspect and very different than the technology and the product side of things right <laughs> um so be able to manage all this there's no other way but listening right so you have to have a certain level of humility that allows you to actually listen and learn and again it comes by the acknowledgement of knowing that we don't know everything or i don't know everything and i'm wearing again a way bigger shoe than my size right so once you you come up to those uh realization uh you start listening quite uh quite uh quite more right and then you make up your judgment could you usually have uh, a wider um, um, uh, scope and a wider view of what's happening, uh, and that's and that's how I personally take decisions, right? So you listen uh, to every to everybody in the room. I I'm, I usually like to be the last person to speak, right? So I usually like to absorb um, all the information uh, that is available, um, but you never wait till you have hundred percent of the information to take a decision right you don't you cannot function with 50 percent either right you need to have 70 to 80 percent of the information uh to be able to take a decision and then the, the rest is honestly intuition and luck i'm not going to lie right so you trust your instinct you trust your intuition and, and then you take a bet right and again sometimes i'm right sometimes i'm wrong and I, then I, I acknowledge full consequences of all these bets that we take yeah,
1: and and as a wise man once said, if you wait till they have a hundred percent of the data to take a decision, you're too late. So you just have to do it this way. Other, it doesn't work any other way. Um, so uh, that's uh, great. And you also need to communicate a lot, right? Both internally and externally. I mean, the CEO is basically communicating all the time. So what are the best practices for for founders? You know, should everyone know bad news? Uh, when do you communicate what? Uh, you know, uh, how do you make that decision and how how do you drive communication?
0: Look, I think transparency is always a key to success, right? So, so, yeah, even when hard decisions have to be made, full transparency has to be there. And it's usually, uh, to a lot of people's surprise, will be taken much better than they have thought, right? As long as you're doing the right thing by the people, as long as uh, this is the right decision for the business, uh, you always have uh, to be as transparent. Now, I'm not saying I'm, I'm the best communicator whatsoever. I'm usually, I actually think this is one of the things that I'm not very, very good at that I'm trying uh, to improve. Um, um, uh, and our colleagues and the organizations, most of them are helping me get there. Um, most of them are better communicator than myself. So I rely a lot on, on them uh, to, to communicate, to be honest. Um, but I don't think there's any other way that will make you get there. Like if you think, um, that by hiding or trying to outsmart people who should actually know the business better than you, uh, in most of the cases is just the output w- will not be great.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, and let me say, I mean, one of the reasons I, um, I asked this question is because I. I saw a video of uh, some of the drivers or the delivery team uh, in MaxUp, you know, talking, and they seem to really um, have alignment and clarity towards the vision of MaxUp and have the ambition with the company to really grow it and and loyalty to it. So I felt that you were doing a good job actually communicating. Uh, we're trying, with the team. Yeah. We're not perfect, but we're trying. Yeah, great. So. Uh, this is a, another question from Darwish, another podcaster, and, and, and he at, wants to ask you, what keeps you motivated day in and day out?
0: Well, again, I think what keeps me motivated is is, is I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. I, 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 I see the opportunity uh, to build a company that will define the region, right? Or this is the ambitious uh, ambition, at least, right? Uh, and this goal I'm very focused on and I'm trying to do my best uh, to get there. Now, the, the, the rest is outside my hand. So anything that's in my hand to do and I don't do keeps me up at night. As long as the rest is is things that I cannot control and couldn't have done a better job uh, in, I actually sleep like a baby. Like I wouldn't mind these things whatsoever, right? Um, so, so I think... Uh, the trust that our investors and our colleagues have put in, in in this organization makes me want to get there not just for me but for for all of those again whether our colleagues or our investors that have um, trusted in us to get there uh, and i think if we are able to do what we claim we are going to do uh, we're we're going to leave a dent and this is something that encourages everybody um, on the macap team to keep uh, hustling till we get there.
1: I'm, I'm sure it does. And this is kind of a personal question. I wasn't going to ask you, but it occurred to me now that you know you were um, you you were you were at Virginia Tech, and then you know you went and you joined your family business. You were importing steel. You know something totally uh, different from the startup world. And then you kind of made a very big decision. I think I would expect to leave this and to go into the startup world and to do something. I mean, why? why? Why didn't you just stay uh, in the company? What, what made you want to do this uh, startup to make this dent that you were speaking about?
0: Look, I think if if you are to, uh, to be successful and, and build something meaningful, you have to really love what you do, right? So I was looking for this thing that I really love to do, right? Not that I'm making money at or whatever, right? So that's a byproduct that comes at the very end if you are... Actually, ends up loving and being good at at what you do, right? So again, I've always been obsessed with the idea of um, of optimization and where where can we optimize here in emerging markets to to solve a very big problem, right? And when you look at the um, at the African continent, it actually produces twice more food as it consumes. Yet there is hundreds of millions of people that suffers from malnutrition, right? So. It's obviously not a scarcity problem. The food is there. It's a logistics problem. Uh, And that excited me actually quite well um, uh, to actually go on on this endeavor and and, and try and see, can you get some of the bright minds uh, here in the Middle East, whether they are from here or excited about the region, and get them to solve that problem and what will be the result is yet to be determined if we're actually successful uh, um, at at what we do. Uh, But just long story short i believe you have to really love what you do because it's a very 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 long very very harsh uh, life more than can people imagine right they only see um the bright uh, the bright side of things and and the articles and the announcements of fundraisings and acquisitions and all these things but it can be a quite uh, lonely journey um to get there and it requires an intense amount um, uh, of resilience specifically in markets that um, uh, in the middle east in general that is not um, as structured or as stable uh, as the western part of the world
1: yep uh, i i agree and um, with that maybe i'll go into the quick fire round and start with uh, this important question relevant to what you were just saying which is how do you unwind and how do you relax and stay energized
0: well, that's a tough one I know I don't think I'll I'll get to the point when I'm actually very relaxed till we hit specific milestones right uh, and I'm not saying uh, it should be this way it's um, it might be a devil of my own making it might be uh, my own personal issue uh, but the the reality is uh, is again'm uh, I'm, I'm, I only relax when there is nothing more that I could have done right? Um, so, so, so again, there was a very, uh, recent incident when there was, um, an, a big issue with, with Silicon Valley Bank and I'm kind of pretty sure your, your listeners are, uh, are aware of this and we had some money, right? But I slept like a baby because there's nothing I could have done, right? Um, so again, what makes me unrelaxed is me thinking that there is something that I could have done better that I haven't. Uh, but as long as these um, are um, uh, is not an issue, I'm 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 not very relaxed, but relaxed enough.
1: Yeah, um, I think this example with the SVB is very relevant because it's really about mindset. You know, not worrying about the things you can't control is very rational, but most people don't do it. Pe- most people worry about these things, and so it's really about the mindset. that It's like an internal switch, and it's very important to have that if you can. Because this is a marathon it's not a sprint it's a 10 year 20 year journey of very tough times so um so it needs to have that mindset uh, set up right so to speak um so an, a second question
0: is what book do you like to recommend to others um um, so what, yeah there's a lot of interesting books that I've uh, that I've read and I've, and I've always actually I, I I like the books um that that are not very theoretical about the way of doing business rather are usually stories of actual business uh businesses that have actually succeeded and and, and looking through how they've taken decisions and I think um delivering happiness which is the story of Zappos that that's yeah. a company that used to sell shoe that got acquired by by Amazon was was one of the best uh, books that I've ever read, because these guys went to uh, one of the and competed with one of these bohemians, and they were very, very, very focused. And uh, what they do, uh, they actually made it, and then eventually got acquired, right? Um, so this is this is one of 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 the books that I can recall uh, that I really, really uh, actually learned a lot from. Yeah, great example. So um, who do you think we should have as a guest on the podcast? Um, so I, uh, I, I haven't looked through who have, have all the, all the people that you've actually had, but I definitely, um, uh, would, uh, would recommend, uh, Mudassir of, uh, of Karim, uh, his, is one of the most resilient people that I've ever seen in, in, in my life. Uh, and he actually was able to make uh, a very big dent in a, in a lot of people's life. Some of them realized it, some of them did not realize it. Uh, but not just in a lot of people's life, but he have actually paved the way um, for companies like us. He brought a lot of, of, of new investors to the region and, and 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 made people believe that you can build something out of the Middle East. And that's what we're trying um, uh, to do as Maxab um, as well. And we hope Uh, to pave the way for the next generation of startups to even do a better job than what we have done.
1: Yeah, I'm a very inspiring uh, person, and uh, Karim, you know, has the Karim Mafia, and so many great startups have come out of it. You are one of members of this mafia, so uh, happy to have you today. Um,
0: What question should I have asked you that I didn't? Well, you asked me a lot of of corner ones, uh, so pretty much you have the you have them cover that there's nothing that um that comes to mind now to be honest but happy to take any further uh ones that you might have for me
1: okay Uh, maybe in uh, the second episode of of our interview sometime in the future so um i'm gonna be wrapping up and i like to close the podcast on a note of gratitude so what is a gift someone has given you that has had a large positive effect on your life
0: um, it's my wife accepting to marry me is uh, the biggest blessing that I've uh, that I've had so far.
1: Wow, a uh, wonderful uh, note to
0: end on. Uh, how how long ago did you marry? Uh, a year and a half now. Uh, and she's keeping wonderful. up with with me not uh, being around as much as I, as I as I as I as I would like to. So I'm 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 very grateful to have her in my life.
1: Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, I just had another podcast, like the one before, actually the episode just came out, uh, yesterday and he also spoke about that. And I also second this, you know, having a spouse who is really supportive is, makes such a huge difference in our stressful type of startup lives. So it's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, um, and, uh, thank you very much, uh, for, uh. You know, uh, taking all these wayward questions and uh, having all these great answers, and looking forward to maybe meeting you physically since there's no more COVID sometime.
0: One day, man. And thank you so much, Ali, for having me. I hope this was helpful.
1: That was wonderful. Thank you, Blair. Thank you so much. Thank you so much,
0: Ali.